historians are going to look back at this moment and say, that's the moment America began to win the competition of the 21st century. So with confidence, optimism, with vision and faith in each other, let's believe in possibilities. Let's believe in one another. And let's believe in America. Oh, I'm a believer. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Now, about that other bill, sir. I got the feeling that something right. I believe it's time to pass. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Bird and Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. And O'Nelly, oh, I should say, oh, Desi, <laughs> nothing, nothing but breaking news headlines coming in today. I know. It's, it's, a, it's a busy day. Let me uh, hit one or two of these before. I've actually uh, canceled my guest today. There was so much incoming news. We will push him off for later in the week. Uh, so hopefully we will have some time for call, some of your calls in this hour if the radio gods are with us. If so, our number will be 818-985-5735 if you care to jot it down right now. Also, very quickly, my thanks to Nicole Sandler for uh, covering for us on Friday's broadcast with two excellent interviews. You may wish to check out, if you missed them, uh, her her interview with uh, Democratic Florida gubernatorial candidate Annette Tadeo, who hopes to win the Democratic primary to take on the authoritarian Republican governor of Florida. That would be Ron DeSantis next year, uh, as well as uh, Nicole's interview with Dave Zirin. Fascinating interview from uh, Dave Zirin of The Nation on the Kaepernick effect on sports and American politics. Her show uh, from the Bradcast can be downloaded, as always, for free at bradblog.com if you missed it. Also, by the way, thanks to those who supported KPFK's most recent fun drive, uh, which has now mercifully ended. But if you did not get a chance to support, you still can at 818-985-KPFK. You hit option number two. 
to make a donation of any size you like to help keep this program both on the air here at KPFK and, yes, syndicated around the country, all thanks to KPFK. Uh, Or you can stop by kpfk.org. You can hit a donate button there for the same reason. And by the way, uh, if you do donate, please let them know you're a Bradcast fan. It will help us to continue and perhaps even expand our programming here in L.A. and across the nation. So let's jump in to, yes, another fire hose of incoming news uh, today. We'll see where it gets us, beginning with one of the more satisfying stories, I think, for now. Steve Bannon, the longtime ally of former President Donald Trump, surrendered to federal authorities on Monday to face criminal contempt of Congress charges after defying a subpoena from the U.S. House Select Committee investigating January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol. Bannon was taken into custody on Monday morning after being indicted by a federal grand jury late on Friday. The 67-year-old was indicted on two counts of criminal contempt, one for refusing to appear for a congressional deposition and the other for refusing to provide documents in response to the committee's subpoena. The indictment came just after uh, a second subpoenaed witness, that would be former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows on Friday, defied his own subpoena from the same committee, and for the same reasons that both Congress uh, and the DOJ have now rejected in Bannon's case, namely that his testimony was somehow protected by executive privilege invoked by Donald Trump who, as the former president, actually has no such magical powers. The House committee has subpoenaed nearly three dozen such witnesses at this point, many of whom could face the same fate as Bannon, who now faces up to two years in prison if found guilty. Why two years? Well, one for each count of contempt. Uh, with which he has been charged. Not only could Meadows face a similar fate, Mark Meadows, if he uh, continues to defy the subpoenas, he could also uh, share that fate with about 35 witnesses who have been taking a similar tactic to simply ignore these subpoenas, uh, as well as other witnesses, by the way, yet to be subpoenaed by the committee, who may have heard a very loud and clear signal with the indictment of... Steve Bannon. Uh, Yes, other witnesses, including the former disgraced president himself, who the committee has yet to rule out subpoenaing as they work their way up the political food chain of those who attempted to steal the 2020 election, uh, culminating in the assault and attempted insurrection on January 6th. On Sunday, Democratic House member Uh, House committee member, I should say, Adam Schiff of California, actually from right here in California, in Los Angeles. In fact, he was asked on Meet the Press whether he felt the Bannon indictment, much as we have been discussing on this program, if it is going to have a very serious effect on the way that the other subpoenaed officials regard their own subpoenas after years of simply ignoring these uh, such lawful directives from Congress under Trump's own Department of Justice, which simply disregarded the rule of law pretty much entirely. Here's Adam Schiff on Sunday. Do you believe that this will shake loose others who are not cooperating right now to cooperate, knowing that the Justice Department 
isn't afraid to uh, indict uh, these folks for contempt of Congress. Without a doubt. Uh, and indeed, even before the Justice Department acted, uh, it influenced other witnesses uh, who were not going to be Steve Bannon. Uh, and now that uh, witnesses see that if they don't cooperate, if they don't uh, fulfill their lawful duty when subpoenaed, uh, that they too may be prosecuted, uh, it will have a very strong focusing effect uh, on their decision making. So it's very positive. I <laughs> view this as an early test of whether our democracy was recovering. Mm -hmm. uh, if our laws to mean anything it has to be applied equally uh, and so I'm very glad the Justice Department has moved forward in this fashion. It may have a very strong focusing effect on the other uh, on the other people who have yeah, been subpoenaed. I would say a criminal indictment does have the effect of focusing the mind. Yes, it might. Uh, when Bannon's indictment was issued on Friday, Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a statement, quote, since my first day in office, I have promised ju Justice Department employees that together we show we would show the American people by word and deed that the department adheres to the rule of law, follows the facts and the law, and pursues equal justice under the law. Today's charges, he said, reflect the department's steadfast commitment to these principles. Okay. Well, I am curious. We have been very critical of Merrick Garland in recent weeks. We were uh, joined by constitutional law expert John Boniface of Free Speech for People a little bit over a week ago as his group was calling for the resignation of Merrick Garland, given his lack at the time, his lack of action at that point in the Bannon case, but more specifically on a mountain of criminal activity by Donald Trump and his clan, for which there has still been no accountability. Uh, I received a ton of responses from listeners at the time agreeing that Garland was not up for the task here and that he needed to step down to make way for someone else who might be. And, uh, you know, if I have time to open the phones this hour uh, and we'll see, I hope we do. I'm curious if Friday's indictment changes any thoughts from listeners on that. Many were uh, critical, for example, that Garland had not even convened a grand jury, as far as they knew, to look at the charges against Steve Bannon after they were referred by the U.S. House. But in fact, Garland had brought the case before a grand jury. We just didn't know about it, which is actually proper. At least until someone is, is actually charged, investigations really should not be public affairs unless or until charges are actually being brought by law enforcement. So I'm curious if anyone's thinking about Merrick Garland has changed in any way over the past few days. Uh, as noted, I will try to open up the phones later on in the hour, if time allows, 818-985-5735. But also my email address, by the way, is bradcast at bradblog.com. If you'd like to ring in that way, and perhaps I can share your thoughts uh, either later in the show or as the week goes on. Uh, in other very important news today, as far as I'm concerned, well, it had to go into overtime over the weekend in Glasgow, Scotland. But international negotiators from nearly 200 nations finally unanimously approved a climate agreement at the COP26 summit on Saturday, uh, which we have been following very closely on this program. Uh, for the very first time, this agreement calls for reductions in coal and fossil fuel use 
and transitions to renewables, a first in the more than 25-year history of U.N. climate talks. Now, you might not think that's much. Uh, I was actually somewhat surprised to hear what <laughs> they had never called for an end to coal and to fossil fuels in the past. I know. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? But that gives you an idea of just how strong the fossil fuel industry yeah. has been around the world and how attached many countries are to making money from it. And, by the way, to what a sea change it has now been with COP26 and how the nations are uh, are uh, dealing with all of this. Nonetheless, the talks fell short of meeting developing countries' demands for access to funding to compensate them for climate-related losses, as we have also been discussing on this show, as the negotiations were coming down to the wire last week with smaller uh, developing countries more in immediate danger from climate, including some island nations that face being literally, literally wiped off the map by rising seas, even though those nations are generally the least responsible for our ongoing and worsening climate disaster. The fossil fuel language uh, that was included was actually weakened at the last minute because of an intervention from India. Was it India, wasn't it? Both India and China intervened to water down the language. China got in on that, Oh, yes, they did. It was, uh, the language was to phase out coal, but Uh they changed that one word to phase down coal. And the entire, they hung up the entire negotiations at the last minute in overtime by wanting to change that one word. Interesting. Uh, But it's uh, big news uh, that the summit produced an agreement Even mentioning coal at all, whether it's phasing it out or phasing it down, mentioning coal, mentioning fossil fuels, incredibly enough for the first time, uh, that is good. Not so good in that they didn't go nearly far enough to avoid the warming that scientists have been warning about for years, Desi Doyne. That is true. And, you know, again, with this uh, COP26 that we've been talking about, it is both not enough and still a lot of that w- progress that was made. It's still a big deal, even though it's still not enough. The agreement paves the way for more stringent emission cuts in the 2020s. It calls for countries to bring their emissions targets in line with what would be needed to hold warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of uh, 2022. Not the warming, but that they need to bring their uh, the, their pledges to to prevent going over 1.5 Celsius uh, by the end of next year, rather than coming back and revisiting them in 2025. So that sounds to me like we are going to be doing all of this again next year. Is that correct? Yes, that is absolutely correct. Now, it is true that we have these meetings, these conferences of the parties, these COPs, once a year, and that's where they have been working out the incredibly technical and complex language for, you know, pretty much remaking the entire global energy system and all of the industries and global Mm -hmm. trade that goes along with that. So it's really complex. But yes, we're going to be meeting next year on this same thing. And we'll see if countries follow through on making their targets match the 2030 goal with the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold next year, which they were really against trying to do, but they managed to keep that in the agreement. Well, I'm actually curious. Is that a good thing? Because I I was curious. They were talking about coming back next year to make deeper cuts, deeper pledges and so forth. And I was somewhat concerned. Well, That will keep them from having to do it this year. Oh, we'll just be back next year. We'll deal with it then rather than 
making those cuts this year, knowing that the the plan for COP would otherwise not be to come back for five more years to make further cuts. Well, they would come back. That's true. So the the plan for them to re-up their ambition, to Mm -hmm. ratchet up their ambition, wasn't supposed to happen until 2025. They were still going to meet every year in the meantime to work out all this other technical stuff. But the fact that they've all agreed to move up that ratchet, to ratchet up their ratcheting up (laughs) uh, four years early to 20, three years early to 2022 is actually a big deal. Yes, absolutely. The climate youth activists were absolutely right. They should have done it this time, but they couldn't get that. But in order to get everybody to sign on, they did get them to agree to do it next year. The developing nations that are suffering the most uh, from uh, severe climate-related damage are once again walking away this year, however, without any guarantees that they'll actually be compensated by the industrialized nation, that is, the nations that are causing the most damage. Andrew Friedman at Axios reports the agreement calls for wealthy countries to, quote, at least double their financing for adaptation efforts in the developing world from $100 billion per year, which is an amount they have not yet actually reached. Uh, but then they should double it in 2025. The developing countries, ranging from islands, uh, small island nations to Africa, met with stiff resistance yet again from the U.S. and the E.U. to any specific uh, promises of compensation for their losses. The agreement instead calls for a dialogue to discuss arrangements for funding with the understanding that such a dialogue will lead to actual financing in the future. Oh, take your time. We'll have a discussion next year about it. Well, I think there's a there's a, some underlying issues that don't go know on. if people oh. the, the Tuvaluans, <laughs> if that's the right word, uh, those people who live in, in, in Tuvalu. Yes. Uh, a na- an island nation that's disappearing. Don't know if they're good about. OK, we'll get to that next year. Yeah, they're definitely not good with that because <laughs> uh, they really would like to have the uh, the wealthy nations step up their actions and their ambitions because they're the ones that are primary re- primarily responsible. But there's an additional underlying part to this, a nuance to this, the loss and damage facility, which is what they were trying to get, which would be the wealthy nations paying poorer developing nations for the losses and the damage that they don't have the money to repair, much less to uh, integrate and move ahead to clean energy. They just don't have the money for that. However, if the United States and the European Union agreed to this idea that, oh, the wealthy nations owe us for loss and damage, then that does open up the United Na- United States and the European Union to liability in world court. You know, it just drives me crazy because we've talked about this before, that the U.S. Treasury on its own in a single day t- brings in anywhere from 30 to 80 billion dollars a day uh, when, when they're, uh, you know, just just on a normal day in revenue, incoming tax revenue on some days. Uh, you know, tax day, April 15th, they bring in $300 billion on a single day in revenue in taxes. The idea that the nations of the world, the rich nations like the U.S., like the EU, are battling against, uh, you know, the idea of committing to $100 billion per year. And it's not just the U.S., it's all of these developing countries that they are battling and fighting over that 
Uh, and uh, these uh, developing nations, they want more. They want 200. They want 500 billion a year. The fact that we can't come up with that money, really, for a nation that is literally disappearing into the ocean. Oh, yeah, we can come up with that money. Like you said, it's like couch cushions for some of these billionaires yes. as well. But that's the, the the problem is that they they are, that the wealthy nations do not want to get caught up having to pay for this stuff unless they really, really want to. And, and, and this that's is, just not good enough. And this, by the way, this is the same argument that has been going back for decades when it comes to uh, greenhouse gas emissions, when it comes to CFCs, uh, you know, that who should pay the burden of these costs, the nations that actually cause the problem or the countries that have the least money to deal with the problem but are the most affected by it, even though they are the least responsible for it. We played this clip again uh, 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 last week, but I think it's worth playing again. This is conservative British Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher back in 1989 speaking to these very issues. That's how long we have been, uh, as she says, uh, squabbling about all of this. It is mankind and his activities which are changing the environment of our planet in damaging and dangerous ways. The problem of global climate change is one that affects us all. And action will only be effective if it's taken at the international level. There's no good squabbling over who is responsible or who should pay. Each country has to contribute. And those countries who are industrialized must contribute more to help those who are not. These protocols must be binding. And there must be effective regimes to supervise and monitor their application. Those who are industrialized, those nations who are industrialized must pay more. That was Margaret Thatcher, a conservative, an actual conservative, back in 1989. So what, 22 years ago or something, uh, 30? I don't know. I can't do math on there. But that's how long we have been, yes, actually squabbling about these things. That's one reason I wanted to play it. And the other one is just to remind you. Uh, that uh, she and we also played a, a, a similar clip from Boris Johnson just last week, the, con- the, the current conservative prime minister, saying the same thing. We have got to take action. And the notion that these are the conservatives in those countries and the idea that in this country there's not even a Republican who will show up for these summits much less to hear someone, a so-called conservative, actually corrupt obstructionist Democrat like a Joe Manchin saying these things. Uh, anyway, the rest of the world is not insane, only only the U.S. Anyway, uh, despite the concerns that nations like Tuvalu have, uh, they did sign on to this agreement. The uh, Tuvalu Climate Envoy Sev Panu. Uh, gave a strong endorsement of the Glasgow text uh, during a negotiation session on Saturday. Uh, He said uh, Glasgow has delivered a strong message of hope. The Marshall Islands climate envoy, who has advocated for stronger language on loss and damage, said that we have to we have work to do, but it does represent real progress. COP26 brought more than uh, almost 200 leaders to Scotland during a year of devastating global climate disasters and tens of thousands of young people marched in Glasgow during the conference uh, and around the world uh, during the summit to demand a strong agreement. They have made quite clear that this year's agreement is 
not nearly enough to meet the challenge of the climate crisis. And as uh, you argued, Des, last week, uh, they are right. But the deal by the nations is also good. Uh, you know, in that, you know, now the ball is now finally, seemingly, sort of, kind of starting to roll forward. Is, is that a fair description uh, on your take? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, there, You know, looking at the reactions from climate scientists around the world, some of them are pessimistic, but most of them do recognize that, well, if all countries make all pledges on time, on target, as they're supposed to, then that does still keep alive the possibility, the chance of of not going above the 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature target of global warming that was set in the Paris Agreement originally. And so, you know, this is this is the challenge of our lifetimes. This is yep. the challenge of our gener- of our generation because, um, you know, the wheels of b- diplomacy are really, really slow. And yet, good luck finding any actual coverage about the things that we have been talking about for the last 10 minutes out this there is true. On, on our public airwaves. This is it true. is maddening. Uh, anyway, there is uh, much more news coming in today, but I will also welcome your thoughts on all of this, if you like. 818-985-5735. Uh, Some of that additional news, for example, former Democratic Texas congressman, former Texas Senate candidate and former Texas presidential candidate, Beto O'Rourke, has announced that he plans to challenge authoritarian Republican Texas governor Greg Abbott next year. Vermont's 81-year-old Democratic Senator Pat Leahy has announced he will not seek a ninth term in the U.S. Senate. Yes, he has served for eight terms, 48 years in the U.S. Senate. Leahy is the longest serving current member of the Senate, and he said on Monday he will not seek re-election next year. By the way, he was uh, elected first to the upper chamber in 1974. He is the last of the so-called Watergate babies who were elected after President Richard Nixon's resignation during his nearly half century in the Senate. Uh, Vermont actually shifted from one of the most solidly Republican states in the country to one of the most progressive. So I guess we should say thank you, Senator. Uh, He leaves a record of promoting human rights, works to ban landmines, protecting individual privacy rights. He's been a champion of the environment himself. He's also known for his love of Batman and the Grateful Dead. He has actually appeared in five Batman movies. I did not know that. Yeah, he, he shows up. He's like the... The Stan Lee of the DC Batman movies, sort of. Yeah, he, he shows up in uh, The Dark Knight, for example. He showed up and uh, gave a line. He said, we're not intimidated by thugs. And he's also uh, attended a whole bunch of Grateful Dead concerts over the years. Sometimes he gets to hang out on the stage. Uh, what that means and who might replace him? Well, we will have time to talk about that in the days and the months ahead. Prosecutors made their closing arguments against Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old who... Uh, killed two people and wounded a third with a semi-automatic rifle last year as part of an armed counter-protest during demonstrations in Kenosha, Wisconsin, following the police killing of George Floyd. The judge in that case, who has appeared to largely be in the bag, and I think I'm putting it pretty nicely, pretty generously there, in the bag for uh, Rittenhouse since the start of the trial. Uh, On Monday, the judge there dismissed one of the smaller weapons charges against Rittenhouse uh, before the case is set to be sent to the jury. Uh, Right-wing conspiracy theorist and propagandist Alex Jones was found guilty by default in a Connecticut libel lawsuit on Monday. 
uh, for his false claims surrounding the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre, which he repeatedly and falsely claimed to have been a big hoax. He now faces um, uh, big penalties there and in Texas, three previous rulings that he lost in Texas cases uh, to grant the families of 10 Sandy Hook shooting victims uh, four victories in Texas in four different defamation lawsuits against Jones. The um, in, in both cases, there will now be trials next year to determine how much Alex Jones should actually pay the families in damages atop of court costs. He's claimed that he hasn't profited from Sandy Hook, but he won't turn over the documents, his, uh, you know, his 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 profit, his his business ledger to make that case. And that's what earned him that uh, default judgment in Connecticut. Uh, let me the big do we have time? Yeah. Before I get to I want to come back to the biggest political news of the day after a break here. But I see we got a couple of calls that let me jump in who want to talk about what we have been talking about. Seku. I hope I'm saying that right. Seku in the Moreno Valley. Hey, Seku. Is that how I pronounce your name, by the way? You did an excellent job. And Brad, I just want to say uh, listen to you and De- Desi for a long time. Really enjoy your work. Thank you, sir. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. That's it. All right. We'll take it. That no, was no, no, no. Oh, you got more. I, Good. <laughs> let me give you my suggestion. Please. So I think the problem with so-called developing nations is it seems that they have no leverage to incentivize so-called developed nations to act in their best interest. So what I suggest they do is they prohibit any natural resources or finished products from leaving their territory. Mm-hmm death into developed nations mm. unless they comply with yeah you know uh their suggestions for cop 22 which and i hear you and that makes a certain sense but it's a very dangerous game because a lot of these uh you know nations are very very poor and if they stop their you know what little exports they have i mean it's a it's it's a a, a dangerous game of chicken is it not it already is a dangerous game. Yeah, it certainly is. The thing is, it's only being played by one side of the of the uh, yep one side of the, the parties that are competing. Yep. So, I mean, I would suggest they redirect their exports maybe to other nations that, that mm. see this as a serious issue, respect life, and want to do what's in the best interest of of everyone on the planet, not just the wealthy. I hear you. And it's a tough call. And that's where uh, some of these nations are, you know, the developing nations in Africa. And but, you know, the ones that that, that get my attention are the ones that who are literally disappearing into the sea. Seku, I appreciate your uh, your thoughts today. And um, we had does we had someone on from the Marshall Islands some years ago during one of the cops. Remember that? Uh, we should yeah. try to, one of the negotiators, I think, from uh, from Marshall Islands, if, yes. I, if I remember. Uh, maybe we should, we'll have to ask <laughs> him what idea. he thinks about withholding his exports. Hey, thanks, Seku. I, re- I really appreciate the call. Let me do one more, because uh, I think we missed him last week. Uh, let me do Roger uh, very quickly uh, from Minneapolis. Hey, Roger, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad and Desi. Um, what fun we have. <laughs> watching, watching, um, almost nightmarish, dystopian governmental dysfunction, um, largely I think engendered by um, the uh, 
encirclement of the public discourse by capitalist interests in this country. It's just awful. (laughs) Well, you must be one of those uh, socialist communists I've heard so much about who are against things like roads and bridges that have earned death threats to folks on the on the Republican side. Roger, i got to get to a break here. We're going to come back with that story. Good to hear from you, my friend. Stay safe up there. Uh, uh, because, as I said, the biggest political news of the day um, may, we'll see, may ultimately prove to be President Biden's signing of the landmark $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill that socialists and communists like Roger probably support. Uh, This is the next big chunk in the Biden agenda following his American Rescue Plan earlier this year. That was adopted with only Democratic votes in both houses uh, and applied a lot of money into COVID recovery, including those $1,400 checks that most Americans received earlier this year. But on Monday, the president signed the largest infrastructure investment In the U.S., since Eisenhower's interstate highway program with the promise for hundreds of thousands of new jobs, even millions of new jobs, including, yes, good paying union jobs, which uh, he made a a point of repeating over and over again today as the Biden agenda begins in earnest. Let's take a quick break here. We'll come back to discuss that bill and the president's remarks at the White House today at the big signing ceremony on the White House lawn uh, and why both looking forward to that and looking back for accountability for the previous administration. Both of these things must happen at the very same time. All of that and your calls at 818-985-KPFK. That's all ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Let's get it started in here. Let's get it started. Ha! Let's get it started in here. Let's get it started. Ha! Let's get it started in here. Let's get it started. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com on Monday afternoon, just before airtime. Moments ago, before a uh, a bipartisan group of Congress members, governors, mayors at the White House, President Biden signed the bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, uh, the largest such investment in well over a generation, hailing it as an example of what bipartisanship can achieve. The bill includes new spending for roads, bridges, broadband internet, the replacement of lead water pipes, some electrical vehicle charging infrastructure that the Senate had passed several months ago, and that progressives in the House, which is to say most of the Democratic caucus, uh, had held from passing, had kept that bill from passing until they could get the larger $1.75 trillion now, Build Back Better Act, uh, to get that through. To expand health care, child care, elder care, education, uh, make the largest down payment on real 
climate action ever in this nation, among other things. At least they tried to hold the bill up until they could pass that. Dems finally gave in, sort of, just over a week or so ago. They voted to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill in the House with the agreement to vote on a framework for the Build Back Better Act in a procedural vote and a sort of kind of promise to pass that final bill uh, within the next uh, week or so in the House Though the so-called moderate six or so votes, Democratic so-called moderates, uh, who may still be questionable on the Democratic side, they insisted that they wait until the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, score this uh, Build Back Better bill to find out how much it'll really cost and find out if the claims from the White House and the Treasury Department that the entire bill is all paid for is actually true. Mind you, those uh, supposed Democratic conservatives did not demand that the bipartisan infrastructure bill, that that all be paid for in full. That's going to add to the deficit anywhere from 250 to 350 billion, as I have seen it. Um, The Republicans and right leaning Democrats who supported uh, support that bill, they're fine with that. They say that it will pay for itself with investments. And that might be true, actually. But it's amusing that they are fine with deficit spending on that bill, just not on the other bill, the other bill that actually helps, you know, parents and children and people get health care and so forth. Well, because, you know, Republicans are against that kind of thing. Yeah. Apparently. (laughs) Apparently. And apparently so are these right wing Democrats. You know, they're cool. They're fine with deficit spending on roads and bridges, not just, you know, not on education and people and helping the elderly get hearing aids and so forth. So uh, but as usual, this is a Democratic only bill. So they are making sure that everything is actually paid for and does not add to the deficit. Uh, But if the CBO score does line up, those Democrats claim, at least in the House, that they will support it. However, that will then require the Senate, in particular Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Yes, we have to keep talking about them. It will require them to play along in the Senate. And I am not quite as sanguine about that as some of the Democrats in the House seem to be, House and the Senate seem to be. I do think they will pass something called Build Back Better. But now the leverage for progressives is by and large gone with the passage of the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill. And I'm worried that the uh, Build Back Better bill is going to be terribly watered down before it's finally passed. I wonder if you share those concerns. If you do, I'll take your calls on that, too. Am I over worrying? 818-985-5735. As to the BIF, as they call it, the bipartisan infrastructure bill itself, Uh, though it only includes about $550 billion, I say only, that's a lot of money, in new spending, uh, it is still a pretty big deal and the largest such investment in infrastructure in at least 50 years. After it passed a week or so ago, President Biden hailed the passage of what he described as a, quote, monumental step forward for the nation. It promises to reach almost every corner of the country, The White House is projecting that the investments will add, on average, about two million jobs per year over the coming decades. So what's in it? Well, $110 billion to repair the nation's aging highways, bridges, roads, 
According to the White House, 173,000 total miles of America's highways and major roads and 45,000 bridges are in poor condition. And the almost $40 billion for bridges is the single largest dedicated bridge investment since the construction of the national highway system. The $39 billion for public transit in the legislation would expand transportation systems, improve accessibility for people with disabilities. It will provide dollars to state and local governments to buy zero emission and low emission buses. Can I, I like, just jump in and I say like, how important that is? Yeah, well, uh, you can, but I was going to say I like the zero uh, better, the zero emission better than the low emissions part. Yes, but absolutely. Yes. The point about having zero emissions, and yeah. that's much better to have uh, school districts go and, and cities go directly to zero emissions and skip over the whole low emissions part. Yes, that's please. that's likely meaning uh, natural gas, compressed natural gas. So yep. let's move forward to the zero completely zero emissions yeah. because everyone who sits on that bus, if it's a school child, if it's a passenger, mm. if it's people who live not nearby on those bus routes, yep. every single one of those people will not have to breathe diesel fuel pollution anymore. That would be nice. And uh, by the way, the current repair backlog uh, for uh, some of this is 24,000 buses, 5,000 rail cards, Cars, 200 stations, thousands of miles of track and power systems are on backlog for repair. That is how long it has been since there has been any real action on infrastructure. The bill would provide $66 billion to improve uh, Amtrak rail service uh, in the Northeast Corridor and other routes. That's less than the $80 billion that Joe Biden originally wanted, but it would be the largest single federal investment in passenger rail service since Amtrak was founded 50 years ago. Also, electric vehicles, $7.5 billion to be spent on electric vehicle charging stations, which the administration says are critical to accelerating the use of EVs to curb climate change, $5 billion for the purchase of electric school buses and hybrids, Reducing reliance on school buses, as you note, Des, that run on uh, on fossil fuel. Uh, modernizing the electric grid to protect against the power outages that have become more and more frequent in recent years. The bill would spend some $65 billion to improve the reliability and resiliency of the power grid. It would also boost, and, and here's where the bipartisan stuff comes in, I think, Des. Uh, it will boost carbon capture technologies... And more environmentally friendly electricity sources like clean hydrogen. Is hydrogen clean, Desi Doyen? Well, yes and no. So hydrogen itself, when you burn it, it just uh, emits only water, vapor, and oxygen. However, how you make the hydrogen is the key. That's where the pollution comes in. Because right now, there are three different kinds of hydrogen. One is gray hydrogen, and that's just straight from fossil fuels, generally natural gas. Mm -hmm. Blue hydrogen is done with uh, carbon capture. So it's still made from natural gas. Yeah. But if they capture the emissions from the process of making it and they capture the emissions from burning it, uh -huh. then it's blue hydrogen. And that's that's sort of okay. And wait, wait, what do they do with that captured? Uh, they pump it underground, uh -huh. which and is a dangerous thing to do. And, you know, there's a process that's going on right now in Iceland where if you pump it underground and you mix it with certain chemicals, then it turns into stone. But that's not what the 
United States uh, domestic oil and gas industry is talking We're about. We're not really set up to do this yeah, at all, we are not. Are it's we? super expensive yeah. right now. Nobody has really found a way to scale it up. And also, bonus, it's super energy intensive. But that's what you had to pay for. This was the buy-in to get the Republicans to play along with any of this climate stuff. And Correct. then the third one is the, the green hydrogen. And then the third kind is green hydrogen, yeah. and that's the kind that's made from renewable wind and solar. That's 100% clean, but we have not ramped up our wind and solar production quite yet to be able to match the need for this hydrogen. Now, there are going to be uses where hydrogen will be helpful, but uh, right now we don't need it as a way to extend the use of the fossil fuel industry. Just go to the electric cars. This hydrogen nonsense. Anyway, the bill also spends $25 billion uh, on airports, runways, gates, taxiways at uh, airports, uh, improve uh, actual terminals and aging air traffic control towers. I don't see the downside of letting those air traffic control uh, towers age for 20 or 30 years. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, the legislation also spends $55 billion on water and wastewater infrastructure, $15 billion to replace lead pipes, which is much less than is needed. But you know what? you got to start somewhere. $10 billion to address water contamination from uh, PFAs. That's uh, chemicals that were used in the you production. You mean PFAS. PFAS, right, that were used in the production of Teflon and firefighting foam, these chemicals that never go away and can now be found in the bloodstreams of each and every one of us because they never go away. So this five-year spending package on buy, on uh, on uh, infrastructure uh, would be paid for by some uh, tapping some two hundred and ten billion dollars in unspent COVID nineteen relief money, fifty three billion dollars in unemployment insurance aid that some states have halted, refused to give to their workers, and then smaller pots of money. Uh, but it will still fall hundreds of billions of dollars short of being fully paid for because that is only required of Democratic Party only bills. Anyway, here was the president, President Biden, on the White House lawn just before airtime on Monday, touting the new bipartisan infrastructure bill before signing it into law. The world has changed and we have to be ready. My fellow Americans today, I want you to know we hear you and we see you. The bill I'm about to sign along is proof that despite the cynics, Democrats and Republicans can come together and deliver results. We can do this. We can deliver real results for real people. We see in ways that really matter each and every day to each person out there. And we're taking a monumental step forward to build back better as a nation. Look, folks. For too long, we've talked about having the best economy in the world. We've talked about asserting American leadership around the world with the best and the safest roads, railroads, ports, airports. Here in Washington, we've heard countless speeches and promises and white papers from experts. But today, we're finally getting this done. So my message to the American people is this. America's moving again. And your life is going to change for the better. This law is going to start to replace 100% of the nation's lead pipes and service lines. So every American, every child can turn on the faucet and drink clean water. And tens of thousands of plumbers and pipe fitters are going to get work done in good paying jobs. This law is going to make high-speed internet affordable and available everywhere. 
everywhere in America, urban, suburban, rural, and create jobs laying down those broadband lines. This law makes us the most significant investment in roads and bridges in the past 70 years. It makes the most significant investment in passenger rail in the past 50 years and in public transit ever. So what, what that means is you're going to be safer and you're going to get there faster. And we're going to have a whole hell of a lot pollution, less pollution in the air. The law also builds on our resilience so that the next storm, superstorm, drought, wildfire, hurricane can be dealt with. Last year alone, the United States, as a consequence of these kind of extreme weather events, lost $99 billion in the United States alone in damage. This law builds back our bridges, our water systems, our power lines, our levees better and stronger. So few Americans be flooded out of their homes or lose power in those days and weeks as a consequence of the storms that hit. Folks, this bipartisan law, for the first time ever, creates a true national network of charging stations for electric vehicles. I ran for president believing it was time to rebuild the backbone of this nation, which I characterize as working people in the middle class. They're the ones who built the country. And to rebuild the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. No one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a single penny in federal taxes. This law is a blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America. It leaves no one behind, and it makes it marks an inflection point that we face as a nation. For most of the 20th century, we led the world by significant margin because we invested in ourselves. But somewhere along the way, we stopped investing in ourselves. We risked losing our edge as a nation. And China and the rest of the world are catching up. Our infrastructure used to be rated the best in the world. Now, according to the World Economic Forum, we rank 13th in the world. Well, that's about to change. Things are going to turn around in a big way. Let me close with this. Throughout our history, we've emerged from crises by investing in ourselves. And now we're emerging from COVID-19 pandemic and we'll build an economy for the 21st century. When I met with the president of China, who I'm going to be speaking with tonight, several years ago, he asked me, we were in China, he asked me, he said, could I define America? And I said, absolutely. It's the God's truth. I said, absolutely. I can define it in one word. Possibilities. Possibilities. There is no limit to what our people think we can do. And there is no limit to what our nation can do. And there is no one thing that I know more than this. It's never, ever been a good bet to bet against the American people. Never, never, never. Given half a chance, the American people have never, ever, ever let this nation down. And it's our job to give our people that chance. It's our job to come together and make sure we remain a nation of possibilities. As I look out in this crowd today, I see Democrats and Republicans, national leaders, local leaders, all elected officials, labor leaders, business leaders, and most of all, I see fellow Americans. I see America. Let's remember this day. Let's remember we can't come together. Most of all, let's remember what we've got done for the American people when we do come together. I truly believe that 50 years from now, historians are going to look back at this moment and say, that's the moment America began to win the competition of the 21st century. So with confidence, optimism with vision and faith in each other. Let's believe in possibilities. Let's believe in one another. And let's believe in America. God bless you all and may God protect our troops. Now let me sign this bipartisan bill. <laughs>
Joe Biden at the White House on Monday before signing the $1.2 trillion uh, infrastructure bill. 50 years from now, they may look back. Yeah, that's true. Uh, historians may say this was the moment uh, the nation began to change. But will that help the Democrats' prospects between now and the midterms? Uh, will that make a difference in Biden's plunging poll numbers? Our phone number is 818-985-KPFK. I know I'm running late. 818-985-5735. Uh, well, we'll you know what? Let's take a quick break here. We'll come back with uh, some of your calls if you want to get in on this. And if the indictment of Steve Bannon has changed your outlook on uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland. So we got... Much more ahead, as they say. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at Brad bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. from bradblog.com. Uh, don't know if we're going to have time or not. 818-985-KPFK. I want to get this in. It was that bill that we were talking about before the break, the infrastructure bill for roads and bridges and airports and stuff that, you know, used to... Uh, there was one thing that Republicans and Democrats could agree on. It was infrastructure. It was roads and bridges and airports. You know, that's the easy stuff. But it was for that bill. That bipartisan roads and bridges and infrastructure bill, you know, that that bill that passed with 13 Republican votes in the U.S. House. It passed with 19 Republican votes in the uh, in the U.S. Senate, including those from Mitch McConnell and from Trump lackey Lindsey Graham. It was that bill that resulted in dozens of Republican members of the U.S. House calling for the removal of from committee uh, chairs of fellow Republicans who voted for that bill. That uh, Republicans calling for other Republicans to be thrown off of committees for voting for infrastructure. That bill, that bill is what Georgia's wingnut congresswoman called a, quote, communist takeover of America. I'm not kidding. Seriously. In a tweet in which she called her fellow Republican Congress members who voted for the bill, she called them, quote, traitors. Traitors. I guess she's calling Mitch McConnell a traitor. I guess she's calling Lindsey Graham a traitor, a socialist. And she posted their phone numbers online. That bill, 
That is all what resulted in death threats to many of those members, those Republican members who actually voted for it in the U.S. House, including Michigan's Fred Upton, who received this voice message after voting for passage of an infrastructure bill. Traitor. That's what you are. You're a piece of traitor. I hope you die. I hope everybody in your family dies. You piece of trash mother voted for dumbass you're stupider than he is he can't even complete a sentence you dumb mother traitor piece of piece of trash hope you die hope your family dies hope everybody your staff dies you piece of traitor that's where we are in this country that's where we are in this country when it comes to infrastructure roads and bridges. We're not talking about, you know, COVID mandates. We're not even talking about, uh, you know, expanding things like health care and education, which I guess is part of the commie plot to take down this country. We're talking about roads and bridges, and that's what it elic- elicits. And I, I'm running late, and I had some other clips that I wanted to play from some other uh, uh, Congress members who received similar and who are very concerned. Hopefully we'll share some of these on, on tomorrow's broadcast. But this is where we're going without accountability for where we have been. And uh, this is why it's important for Merrick Garland to hold accountable people like Steve Bannon, people like Mark Meadows, and dozens of other people who have been called to testify in the U.S. House to the Select Committee about what happened on January 6th. Because if it does not happen, if there is not accountability, if these people are, A, allowed to, you know, never talk at all, uh, you know, to, to Congress when they are subpoenaed, well, then congressional subpoenas are meaningless. But more importantly, we will never deal with what went on in 2020 when the president of the United States tried to steal a presidential election, and now they're preparing to do it in 2024. This time, they'll be ready for it. All right, we got to get out. I'm sorry. Did, Des, did you have a, a comment well, no, you wanted to make before I go? I just wanted to point out how crazy go. it is, how insane it is that we are at this place in the United States where infrastructure gets death threats to Republicans who vote for what used to be a very common, easy thing to vote for. That's because you're a communist as well, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Thank you very much to our producer, Des, to our board operator today, Mark Maxwell, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. I will see you there till we see you here, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Brad.